0: The
1: truck! You are listening to Why the Truck.
2: Are you ready to truck it? It's time for your Nooner with Dooner. Thanks for joining me on this Friday, right before Memorial Day. Foot's already. Like a, a foot out the door. I think that's how that saying goes. Home of the free because of the brave. Thank you all so much for your service, and I hope you have a safe and healthy weekend this this weekend. Um, and you going on a road trip? I know I am. Doing clan, heading down to North Carolina. But before that, we did that, we had to celebrate our kids' last day of school, as many of you did this week. Well, this is how Risa the Trucker celebrated her son's last day at school. Let's take a look at this clip. <laughs> Bringing him in style. In a semi. alright.
3: and you are both conquering our anxiety right now. <sighs> alright. Alright,
2: hop down. I don't know if they have trailer restrictions at that school, but even if they do, they didn't on this particular day.
4: Uh, come on, buddy. Alright, hop down and I'll take you to your backpack. Driven by mom. <laughs> I got it. Or I'll see you in a little bit, okay? Come on.
2: What an excellent start to the year. In fact, one of, uh, one of our listeners, Troy DeWalt, he said, um, I pick up my son from school every chance I get in the Peterbilt just to make his day. He absolutely loves it. I strongly support women driving and operating trucks stronger together. Good stuff, buddy. By the way, this truck over here, it ended up fording the river. A trucker ended up fording uh, Sakuit Creek. Show this picture. In New Hartford, New York, on Wednesday after crossing a driveway, he went down an embankment before finishing his journey in the depths below How are you going to tell your boss you hit a fish while you're out with the truck? Well, listener Brad Lyon said, I have just invented a new sport. It's called roadkill fishing. You don't even need a fishing license. You just need a CDL. All right, man. On today's episode, I'm talking to NASA about the Space Agency's mission to build 3D-printed habitats on Mars. We're going to learn all about the logistics involved with putting people and supplies on the Red Planet. Hey, and how that logistics trickles down to us right here on Earth It's Memorial Day, so we have to have a veteran on the show. We got Ariel Resupply Coffee founder Mike Clemmer. He's going to talk about coffee supply chains. We'll learn all about this veteran owned Java brand and what they got brewing. And coffee's for closure, so we got to put that coffee down. It's Kevin Hill. He's dropping by the show. It's a down freight market. So I said, Kevin, come on here. Give the people something to think about over this long weekend on how to get ahead of this market. So he's going to help us out. Plus, we got port fights, we got incredible New York City trucking. In the day in the life of a driver. So let's tip the band, and we'll get all into it. Supply chain challenges are not always easy, but the commitment from the team at Dunavant Logistics to take on that responsibility is unwavering. Logistically speaking, they're at the center of it all. Visit them at Donovan.com. Now, before we bring on our guest, let's take a look at what we're talking about here, because this is really, really cool. I didn't see anything like it until I saw this tape. They're building right here. What NASA's building is a habitat, right? They're building a habitat right on Earth astronauts to go live in in space. This whole thing is 3D printed. Mark Watney on the, in The Martian, he said, in the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm gonna have to science the yes out of this. And that's what NASA's gonna do. What an amazing mission. I believe that this begins very shortly, if not already, They're gonna have, they're gonna have people living in here for quite some time to simulate that Mars environment for the ultimate plan to bring us up into space. And like Mark Watney, have them live in a habitat and environment up there. We got some great guests to speak about it today. It's Nicole Pinatek, she's from NASA's Langley Research Center. And we got Mike Ewert, he is from NASA's Johnson Space Center. Thank you both for coming on the show today. That's great yeah,
4: to be here. Yeah, thanks with for you. having
2: us. Now I hadn't, I haven't seen any, that was super cool. You heard so much about like Le- the years leading up, 3D printing, it's going to revolutionize everything. It's going to change everything. And now we see it making actual habitats on Mars. That is, that's crazy. But before we get all into it, let's start with you guys. Nicole, introduce yourself. Do you have a code name?
4: I wish I did. No, I don't have a code name. Um, my name is Nicole Fiontech, and um, my background is in biomedical engineering, and I'm now an aerospace engineer or systems analyst. Um, at NASA Langley Research Center, and I work in the Space Mission Analysis Branch for the Mars Architecture team.
2: And you took the pathway of intern to your position now. When I have NASA guests on, I always ask, because it's such an aspirational job, how do people get to NASA? And they always recommend interning. But I think you're the first guest that I've had on from NASA to actually went that pathway of intern to actual their position right now.
4: Yeah, I actually did. I did a lot of internships. I did four with the bridge that I'm currently in. And then I actually did two at Johnson Space Center, one working with Mike's group, actually. Um, So six internships in total. Um, Can't recommend them enough. Great opportunity to get involved and see everything that or not everything, but see a lot of things that NASA has to offer.
2: Wow. And Mike, what does NASA have to offer you? What do you do over there?
5: I'm the Chief Technologist in the Crew and Thermal Systems Division at Johnson Space Center. So I work with all the different folks that are developing technologies for Moon and Mars missions. Uh, I've actually been here for 33 years. Uh, so it's been, been a great ride.
2: Well, is this, this has to be one of the most uh, exciting and revolutionary projects you've worked on is this, this Chappie mission, right? Tell me about it. What, let's start there. What is this thing?
5: Yeah, CHAPIA, we pronounce it, uh, stands for Crew Performance and Exploration Analog. Uh, So we're doing a simulated Mars base on Earth. Uh, It's actually going to be a full year mission with four crew members uh, living inside this habitat and kind of simulating as many aspects as we can of of a real Mars mission.
2: Wow, and Nicole, I believe people are, are moving in soon. Have they already started packing their bags to, to go live in this environment?
4: You know, if it was me, I would have started packing a long time ago to prepare to be that far away, but um, I'm not sure if they've started packing personally.
2: Well, So, Mike, why don't you just send them over? Like, why do you have to build this? Why don't you just send them over to the Disney Star Cruiser? <laughs>
5: Yeah, we actually use a lot of different analogs at NASA um, testing different aspects, and that's actually a great um, video walkthrough you've got playing there. Um, This one in particular is a bit larger than uh, others we've done, like the HERA, which is a a human uh, exploration research analog actually in the same building at Johnson Space Center. Uh, That one's been used for some shorter duration missions, uh, over the years, testing different aspects, um, and this one in Chapia uh, will actually kind of explore a lot of different things, trying to simulate the the time delay and communication from Earth, um, some resource restrictions, uh, the the food system that they will be eating from, and they'll actually have a little bit of. I don't remember if we saw it in the video here, but in one little space, there's uh, some plant growth machines um that they'll be able to grow a little bit of their own fresh food um to help wow. help with their
2: That's a lot to account for. Like, For example, we we, we all saw The Martian in it. Mark Watney said, if the oxygenator breaks down, I'll suffocate. If the water reclaimer breaks down, I'll die of thirst. If the hab breaches, I'll just implode. If none of those things happen, I'll eventually run out of food and starve to death. It sounds like you have your your work cut out for you. Mike, where do you start on a project like this? Where do you first start thinking uh, about it and handling this kind of problem? And how do you replicate that on earth?
5: That has been something we've been planning for a couple of years now. Um, and so it's with, with a Mars mission, it's so much different than the space station where we've got more regular resupply. I mean, it's still not like, uh, you know, having your grocery store on the corner, um, uh, even on space station, they, but they get a new supply run every few months. Um, but for Mars, it's so far away that uh, the, the trip is so long that we really have to think of everything, pack everything uh, beforehand, and so that's what we've been doing is you know going over. We use space station a lot to help us think of what things they're going to need, how much supplies they'll need, you know, all the food, clothing, um, ways to to stay clean and. And um, and then of course all of their um, supplies for the research they'll do, and they will be doing simulated uh, research and spacewalks and things like that in Chappie. That's what you're seeing with when you see uh, going out the door there. That's the airlock, and uh, they can go out into this area of a uh, call it the sandbox. Basically, this this red sand area that simulates the Martian surface. Yeah, You even you dyed the, the sand in there to give it that reddish hue,
2: did you not? Yes. Well, it looks cool. How did, Mike, how do supplies get to, for the Earth version of this mission, how do they get over to Johnson Space Center?
5: For, for Earth, it was really just um, traditional uh, supply chain kind of things, you know, just purchasing from different vendors. But the big thing was uh, trying to think of all that we would need ahead of time. And uh, get all those stocked into the habitat. Uh, There will be a little, um, like a a logistics module out on the surface there that will simulate where uh, supplies have landed and the crew can go out. You know, maybe every few months when they uh, get low inside, they go out to their uh, logistics module and bring in some new supplies. But probably most of that would have to be. Um, ready all at the beginning of the mission. So it's really all about thinking through the whole year this mission is going to simulate a little over a year and uh, think through everything they'll need during that time.
2: Nicole, how do you pack for a mission like this? How do you how do you pack for a road trip to space?
4: Very, very carefully. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be considered for Chipia of being a year in length, Um, let alone for a Mars mission that's going to be two to three years. Um, If you imagine just what you'd need to take a simple road trip, um, you're probably going to bring a spare tire, you're probably going to bring your snacks, but we don't have the luxury of stopping on the way at a gas station to get what we forgot. Um, So just trying to think ahead about all the things that we could need and learn from our operational history so far um, in places on Earth that have performed similar analogs and on the International Space Station, and what we'll learn from the moon when we get to go there again.
2: What do you hope to take from this mission in terms of the, uh, that ties directly into the logistics of a Mars mission?
4: Yeah. So one of the things right now on in the international space station, even though it is so far away, we are able to resupply on a semi consistent basis um, much more than we will be doing for Chipia. So we'll learn a lot about Chipia about how things act when they're kind of in a vacuum, in terms of logistics, um, what things people need, what things people use, um, and be able to look at it from a different perspective that we normally don't operate in um, in our typical spaceflight environments right now.
2: Mike, so how sealed off are the four crew that are going to this? Like, how do you monitor supply levels, especially since you want to replicate what would be going on up in Mars where someone can't just walk down from the kitchen and bring someone a Butterfinger?
5: Right, yeah, they'll. We we've been constructing a list of all the things that they have in the habitat, and you know where they're stored, and things like that. And then the the logistics module that I mentioned, and so they'll the crew will have this list, and they'll be responsible for you know keeping track of how much they're using, kind of get um, a look at whether they're um, using things too fast or too slow. Um, so they'll be kind of uh, it'll be up to them to monitor. Um, but as far as like mission control, um, we will have a simulated mission control, uh, just that it won't be millions of miles away. It'll be right on the other side of the wall, uh, so that uh, you know that, that definitely yeah, keeps the the risk low for this. Um, but it'll be very realistic in terms of um, the interaction between the mission control and the crew, and so we expect to learn a lot from just from their experience and. You know, in terms of logistics, if they if they feel like they um, really wanted something that they didn't have, um, and you know w- one of the options they have actually is we're going to put a, a 3D printer in the habitat, so if they may be able to make some things that uh, on demand. Um, you know, if, if a little part breaks or something like that. Uh, hopefully, they'll be able to replace it by by 3D printing it.
2: Do you know what that material is? That the, like, what do those walls feel like? They, they look really interesting to me. And I saw the video where they were they were pouring them. But what is like? What's
5: that material, Mike? It's 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 a concrete type material. Uh, I don't know the exact details, but um, yeah, they're experimenting with. Actually, this the company that um, constructed it. Uh, Icon has built some houses on Earth um, with that technique, um, and where NASA has been experimenting with. Um, you know, is there a way to use the Martian or lunar materials and put it into some kind of matrix, uh, you know, and, and pump it out like, uh, like, like you're pouring concrete. Uh, Interesting. So it's something that, you know, maybe one of these days we'll actually be able to use the local resources, uh, on another planet to, to print our houses.
2: Yeah, well, maybe even, like, food and other stuff. Who even knows now that you, got, you guys turn in knobs on the on the 3D printers? But, Nicole, let me ask you something. What is so Because we mentioned the moon and we mentioned the International Space Station, but what is so different about the logistics to Mars? You're talking about a, a much greater distance here on both, going there, coming back, any type of resupply. It's got to be a lot more challenging. Yeah,
4: so one of the main things is that Unlike when we just go up to the International Space Station, which is orbiting Earth, or the moon, which is also orbiting Earth, Earth is consistently in the same spot. So we know how far away we are. We know how to get back in a certain number of hours to days. Whereas for Mars, Mars and, the, uh, Mars and Earth are both orbiting around the sun at different rates. So once we, leave from, uh, once we leave from Mars from Earth, we can't come back as easy. And it takes a lot of time in order for us to catch up. Um, and start to get to kind of where the crew will be at. So yeah, this visualization here shows it perfectly. Um, One of the things that we're working on right now um, is looking at a variety of different ways in which we can get to Mars. So this is not the route that we're gonna go, this isn't the path specifically we're gonna take, Um, but we're looking at a variety of options. So this is an example trajectory. Um, So the crew is in that pink dot there, and you can see the green path that they left Earth from. And up in the top corner, you can kind of see their odometer for the mission. So the distance that they are from Earth, the total mission odometer and AU, which is the distance from Earth to the sun. Um, so you can see we're getting into the multiples there. Um, for this trajectory, we end up getting to Mars at around a 279. Um, and you'll notice that the communication delay when we get to Mars is around 37 minutes at this point. Um, which is just something that we've never experienced. So if the crew loses something and needs to find something, they can't just ask ground and ground get back to them as quick as they can right now. Um, It'll be an extended period of time, let alone for if something breaks, getting ground support in order to help fix it. Um, In addition to all of this, uh, there are engineering challenges associated with it. Um, where the crew is blocked from Earth by the sun. So that'll be something that we need to overcome. Um, And you can see in this trajectory, we're even going further out than Mars. Um, So further from the sun, further from Earth than we've ever been before, um, all in an effort to continue to explore. And you can see right now the odometer is at 9 AU. It'll get up to 11 AU by the end of the mission, um, which is just a crazy different paradigm than we're used to. Um, In addition, you'll see the mission days are going to approach 850 for a total mission duration. So the amount of time it gets to Mars is different than the amount of time it gets back because we have to re-catch up to Earth. So we like to talk about the Mars mission in terms of the total length, not just the time to get one way, because the other way can be so substantially different. And we have to prepare for that in all ways, especially logistically, so that the crew has everything they need to survive um, for those 850 days.
2: This is a huge sacrifice, you know, you're talking about almost three years of your life to get to Mars, to go live in the habitat over there, then to come back, all goes well, you, you get to come back. How do you, how, what do they do during this trip? Like, I understand they got to do the sciencey stuff, but like, how, what about the other side, like the mental side? Like, what do you do for leisure? What do you do for recreation? What do you do, like, with that other portion of your life when you're not working?
4: Yeah, so hopefully Chapia can help inform this and in our experience on the International Space Station, figuring out what those group dynamics look like when there is up to a forty-five minute communication delay with the rest of the world. Making sure we're taking care of our crew's physical and mental health when they're in microgravity for longer than they've ever been before, when they're away from people from Lugan, they've ever been before. Um, so just trying to account for all of those factors. Um, and I think there's also an aspect of the crew will figure out what works best for them. Um, and each individual person on Earth likes to do their own things in their own free time. And they'll have a little bit of that at some point. So I guess whatever they like to do, too. Wow.
2: Well, Mike, has NASA JSC done something like this
5: before or is this this all new ground here? There have been other uh, analog missions. The HERA one I mentioned earlier has done seven-day, 30-day, and up to 45-day missions. Um, There's uh, actually some underwater uh, analogs called NEMO uh, that have been done in the past. Uh, I was actually involved in one back in the 1990s that we called the Lunar Mars Life Support uh, Test Program. And uh, in that one, we were actually focused on the life support systems. Uh, So in in Chopea, it's not a closed environment. We're not actually recycling the air and water, but uh, in this one we did uh, in the past, uh, we went up to 90 days with a crew uh, inside um, a habitat that was actually recycling the air and water. Uh, So yeah, we we do quite a bit of uh, analog testing on the ground. You know, want to make sure we get it right before we actually send people into space.
2: How do you see this, once we get all this data and everything, how do you see this translating To helping us back here on Earth, Mike.
5: Uh, I think in the planning rates, uh, you know, are there ways to reduce the amount of um, consumables that we need uh, to live more sustainably? Uh, You know, one of the investigations I'm involved in with uh, in the Chippia analog is a laundry investigation, so we've been studying, you know, how, and this is a little different than what they do on the space station because they don't have a laundering machine up there um, in, in Chapia, We're trying to figure out how efficiently they can uh, wash and dry their clothes, you know, using the least water, the least electricity, things like that. So, uh, you know, all the different um, resources that they use uh, on even on space station where they try to keep it as minimal as possible. There's things like disposable wipes and, um, you know, even the clothing, like I mentioned, this gets thrown away. So trying to figure out as much as we can how to recycle and reduce the, the amount of logistics that have to be supplied.
2: Nicole, in the in the Martian, Mark also said, they say once you grow crops somewhere, you have officially colonized it. So technically, I colonized Mars. In your face, Neil Armstrong. Is that true? Once you grow, is that the huge goal here, being able to grow crops on, on Mars? And um, And how many crops are we talking about here? What can we grow inside one of these habitats?
4: You know, in terms of the surface of Mars, I think there's a lot of considerations that are going to go into how we interact with it to begin with. Um, This is an actual planet, not just the moon. Um, So going there, we have to be concerned with planetary protection. How do we protect our astronauts from Mars and how do we protect Mars from us um, in order to do the most valuable science that we can do? So I think it'll depend on what the science objectives end up being um, and how we end up going forth in terms of how much we interact with the planet and kind of at what rate we do so to make sure that we're doing it as safely and protecting it for the science value as possible.
5: Well, and so Mike, Chippia, when does this... Yes, yeah, uh,
2: yeah, sure. Go right ahead. I
5: was gonna say in, in Chappia, it's a fairly small uh, area for, for plant growth, uh, but at least it gives them something fresh to eat um we we call it like a salad machine and it's probably how we'll do things in in space at first and even on space station they have um some experimental plant growth and they've been able to eat some of the things they've grown up there so at least it gives them a little bit of uh, fresh food and then hopefully in the long run you know can increase that to where you're growing more crops and actually displacing a significant amount of the food you have to bring along
2: is there caffeine in space do you, you get some
5: coffee up there Yes, they get their coffee.
2: <laughs> <laughs> much, much needed. Well, before I let you go, thank you, you so much for, for giving us insight into this mission and what's going on here, but I always have to ask NASA people their favorite space movie. We'll start with you, Mike. What is the best space movie?
5: Uh, I guess I, I go with the, the realism. I really like uh, Apollo 13 and, mm. and the historical aspect of that and, of course, the, the, uh, the success uh, in the end of um, uh, bringing the crew back alive.
2: Of course, of course. And how about you, Nicole?
4: I think mine would be Interstellar. Um, I think it's just such a cool concept in general, and just such a fun time to watch it.
2: Can we do that? Are, are you? Is that your next project? Space time continuum jumping—is is that possible?
4: You know, I don't know about me personally, but I hope someone somewhere is doing it.
2: It'll be wild. Well, I'll see you on the other side of the wormhole, you two. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I appreciate your time and for letting us know about 3D printing habitats on Mars. Thanks for having us.
4: Thank you. Wow.
2: Brave new, crazy new world. Well, meanwhile...
4: Have you ever heard of grounding your bed? It's something that my mom sent me on TikTok. She had it in mind for my husband, who has a lot of disabilities and is often in a lot of pain honestly i haven't done any research and i don't really know much about it other than i know grounding is a good thing and i have no idea if this is going to help my husband or not but i figured it's worth a shot so my mom stopped over and surprised me with all the materials we need and now both of our beds are grounded
2: Does that do anything? That seems like it could be more dangerous than than anything. I picture a bed being set on fire. I don't know. Maybe someone else knows a little more about this. Before we get to our next guest, here's a little video from them. Let's take a look. At Aerial Resupply Coffee, we're developing the
3: next generation of coffee delivery. Admittedly, we're still working out a few of the kinks.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
3: Maybe we could just mail it to you. Parachute Army Man not included. I don't know. I think they
2: should include the, the the Army Man. Let me try and pitch that to Michael Klemmer, founder at Ariel Resupply Coffee. What happened with your drone deliveries there? Looks like you might need a hard hat. Oh, we got him muted. Can we unmute Mike? Or is, there we go. There we go.
3: Am I, am I on?
2: Yeah, you're good now. There we are.
3: Okay. Hey, so no, you know, it's, it's funny. We did that commercial and it's hard to operate drones in the building. So we left it at that.
2: You left it at that. You left it at, well, for those who don't know, they've never been introduced to aerial resupply coffee. What are you and your, what are you all about?
3: Yeah. So I'm all about um, supporting those who support others. Really my, my catchphrase lately is logistics wins wars. Mm. Uh, You know, it's one of those things where, um the friction point of the of people who put in the hard daily work to keep this country and this economy moving um should be recognized because of what they do, and they rarely do get that recognition and that's my goal with aerial resupply coffee is to make sure that they uh have what they need to perform at their very best and uh yeah i mean that's that's pretty much it
2: i mean this has been your your full professional story I was reading a post by yours, and you're talking about you're calling into logistics and you started out in the military and initially your first job didn't really work out too well. You didn't like it. They didn't like you over there. Tell us that story. How did you get into the logistics side of it and find your calling?
3: Yeah. So I was military intelligence when I enlisted in the military and you know, the program that I was with was really about ground-based radar that had zero application for the first like six years of my army career. And it just didn't resonate with me because I wasn't doing anything. And when I commissioned, and dropped my packet to become an officer. They moved me into the quartermaster field. And I, it was almost like I knew I was home. It was almost like that was where I was supposed to be all along. And there's just something magical about delivering fuel to people in the middle of the night when they're almost out. You know, it doesn't seem like it's a sexy job, but it is. And you know, everybody's really appreciative whenever they get that care package or wherever they get whatever supplies they need uh, to be successful.
2: Did they give you a good coffee when you're in the military?
3: No, no, there's no such thing as good army coffee. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, it, you know, the good thing about co- army coffee is you can double it as lubricant for vehicles if you need it. Um, doesn't exactly digest very well.
2: How did So how did you get into coffee then? Why did you, were you like, we, we got to right this wrong of the uh, lubrication coffee?
3: Well, there was two things, right? So uh, number one, it was, yeah, I was tired of drinking really poor coffee and really garbage coffee over, the, over the, uh, the time in my Army career. But also, you know, I, I've learned over time that coffee is really the binder between people. It's the ultimate drink that everybody networks with. And when I exited the military and started my next career, I found myself drinking coffee with everyone and building relationships. And so I just wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to have something that was mine that could support others, but also continue to build those relationships with people that I met every day.
2: Who is this on your sign? Who called you stupid for starting a coffee company?
3: Oh, well, so when I first started, you have a lot of people that come out of the woodwork when you're telling all your friends. And I ran into a uh, an old uh, brigade commander of mine who has a disdain for people who do this very type of thing. And uh, he decided to, you know, give me his two cents. And uh, I politely told him to go pound sand. Uh, but this is, <laughs> so this is what, this is, you know, it, it's really turned into something more than I'd ever hoped from two years ago. And uh, looking forward to growing this thing as, as big as I can.
2: You know, I just had NASA on. I asked them that, that coffee equation. They said there definitely will yeah. be coffee in space. Uh, are you working on that contract? Any plans to distribute aerial resupply to Mars?
3: I mean, I'd love to do that. I think that's the ultimate aerial delivery mission, right? I mean, I think <laughs> I need to, I need to uh, get in contact with those guys from NASA and see what I can do.
2: Well, how does an earth-based coffee company work, right? You had to learn all of this. You don't come from like a family of like Colombian bean, you know, roasters or something, do you?
3: I don't, I don't. It would probably be easier if I did. No, I think that uh, for me, it's, you know, I had to learn from the ground up, uh, really tear apart how coffee supply chains even work and tear tear apart where I'm going to get the beans from, how they're going to get here, how I'm going to roast them, how I'm going to get them out the door, and ultimately how they're going to show up in my customers' hands. And that was a um, very, very, very steep learning curve uh, to do that, considering I you know, I was brand new to the coffee world, brand new to commodity trading, because commodities are, you know, coffee is, I think, either number one or number two commodity worldwide, depending on the day uh, between oil and coffee. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just, you, you start digging into the world and then you ask questions and you start learning from other people.
2: How do you find a source? Like, how do you find your beans?
3: Well, for me, because I'm really small at this point, I'm using an importer uh, because I don't want to have to, it's hard for me to get to the farm and get to the actual source of the beans. So I rely on an importer to help me with that through sustainability, finding the right ethical uh, farm, the ethical treatment of workers and farms so that I'm, I'm proud of my supply chain as well. Uh, and so that was, it. you know, you got to interview a lot. You interview a lot of importers, uh, to find the right ones. And I found, I found a lucky one or I found a good one, actually.
2: Interesting. So how, so how does the supply chain work? You, you got the beans, you got to find a packer, you got to distribute it. Bring, bring me inside this a little
6: bit.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, well, the beans are, the beans are the easy part, at least yeah. for me now that I have an importer, right? Because I just buy direct from direct from them. Uh, And then I get the hundred pound bag of coffee beans that shows up. I have my own roaster. I have my own packaging machine. I have a K cup machine and really it's all roasted to order uh, with the exception of a few retail ventures that I'm doing. So anytime a customer orders from me on my website or through Amazon or through any of the social media apps, uh, I roast it and I pack it and seal it in either whatever, whatever packaging material, whether it's a 12, 16 ounce bag or a K cup box and then ship it out the door. It's all small parcels. So the post office, UPS, FedEx, they're all my friends right now.
2: So so is, is it any different too? You mentioned like K-Cups and like the, the vacuum seal bags. Any difference in the distribution of the two?
3: Uh, Well, you can you – know, no, not necessarily. I think for me, like from a – retail distribution is a little bit different. Uh, bag coffee for 12- and 16-ounce bags. Uh, It's very easy to get into uh, stores or into, you know, markets, mom and pop shops. The K-Cups are a little bit different for me specifically because I don't have a pre-printed box that's, you know, perforated in the same way that you might see other K-Cup packaging in in the store. Um, That's coming. So I'm still still growing. This is still a solo venture. So everything that I have right now is everything that I've built. So.
2: So are you, so are you the only one in like the flavor lab over there? How are you coming up with like different flavors? What kind of flavors of coffee do you have?
3: So right now I have uh, really single origin beans coffee for uh, Colombian Supremo, which is my light, dark, and medium roast. I, I am the proud taste tester of everything that I do. And so Spectre is my dark roast espresso blend. It's a mix of, um, Sumatra, Colombian Supremo and a couple, uh, different, Flavors from Indonesia, and then I also have my daughter's. So my daughter draws labels for me because she wants to be involved. So her coffee that she has as her flavored line is called Spring Kitty right now, which is salted, salted caramel mocha, uh, and that's her line of flavored coffees is a huge hit, uh, and I think it's you know it speaks to kind of the military families and kids that that are always. Um, you know they're all they're they're always moving around and they always want to do stuff with their parents as well, so I'm proud to bring her into the fold
2: is that is that true light roasts are better than dark roast for uh
3: warring? Well, you never know I mean light <laughs> roasts you know, for warring, I'm not sure. I would say that you know from a caffeine perspective, you know the lighter the roast, the more caffeine content there is. If you go super dark you you almost roast you know fifty percent of the caffeine out of the coffee. So, you know, that medium roast, that one right there, Moab, that's on the screen right now, that's my double caffeinated version. That's a medium roast. So if you're, you're big on caffeine, that's the, that's the, that's the blend.
2: So how do, you, how do you control the caffeine content in the bean? I mean, I imagine some of it's got to be inherent to the bean itself, but you mentioned roasting okay. plays a big part in there. So how do you double caffeinate something?
3: Well, so the Moab is a different bean than Columbia Supremo. So it's Robusta bean, which is naturally more caffeinated anyway. So once you, you know, it's almost twice the amount of caffeine that a Colombian supremo bean would have. And so when you roast it to medium, you're keeping the majority of the caffeine content in it uh, as a finished product. Sean
2: Forrest Simmons, he had a coffee question. He said, ask about the disconnect of visibility from the grower to co-op to second co-op to the roaster. Is that something that you've experienced in the past two years?
3: You know, I haven't. um, But again, it's I think because I'm so small and because of my business model going direct to importers, I don't think I see or have I don't maybe that's actually a good point. I don't have the visibility of what happens from importer to farm because I'm not looking at that and sourcing direct from farm. So there may be for me, because I'm so small, that might be a gap that I have.
2: So you had military experience doing logistics, so that world's not a shock to you. But what, what was a big surprise to you? What was a big eye-opener coming to this world of coffee? What have you, what have you had to learn? What, didn't, what did you take for granted, or you just were not anticipating?
3: Well, I think in doing this entire venture myself, the big thing that I've, not, or that I've struggled with is really on the, on the marketing, the sales, and the web development side. You know, operationally and logistically, logistically for distribution, that's my bread and butter. But when it comes to how do I, you know, break into a market that is some people have called saturated. I don't. I don't. I think there's always room for it. Uh, but for me, I've had to learn, you know, how do I market my coffee? How do I find my right customers? How do I kind of forge my messaging into a crowded market space? And I think I'm doing that pretty well. But it it has it has definitely been um, an eye opener and how hard it's been and how hard companies have to work to be able to find their niche and be seen by customers
2: working on anything new. What, what's the next product? What's really working out for you guys. And as you refine this brand and take it even further.
3: Well, so now, so I'm working on uh, becoming a fulfillment by Amazon uh, product, so that you can use Amazon prime to buy aerial resupply coffee. I am working with Kroger to be on retail shelves here in Virginia and then my next flavored roast freedom kitty is going to be released here probably in June in preparation for 4th of July and that's a um chocolate cherry amaretto coffee that my daughter has drawn the label for so it's not out yet but it's coming
2: what's the most popular one is it is it a light roast is it that medium is it that double caffeinated people like the flavors mm-hmm. what uh, what what hits these days
3: well actually my my darkest roast 15w40 is my most popular roast at the moment and you know, I, I I made that brand name for it because of all the mechanics that I used to work for in the military and how hard they would work and how hard in the middle of the night at two, three or two, three in the morning, they'd still be up trying to fix equipment. And it's also a slight nod to the fact that Army coffee is a lot like drinking motor oil, like I said. So <laughs> it works both ways, but it's the best. Uh, it's my best seller by far right now.
2: Well, hey, people who want to give you some more sales, they want to get some of your coffee, they want to try it out, they want a box to hit them off the head, where do I send them to?
3: Yeah, so you can find me at aerialresupplycoffee.com. You can find me on Amazon. Uh, I'm available through uh, the Facebook, Instagram shopping, if you want to do it that way. And then uh, locally here in the Charlottesville area, if anybody's watching in this area, you can go up to Jack Shop Kitchen in Rutgersville, and it's for sale on the shelf there.
2: Hey, Mike, thank you so much for your your service Someone's nosing around on the set over here. I should throw my goat at them. Uh, get out of here, Bill. What's going on here? Hey, hey thank you so much for your, thank you, distracting Absolutely. me over here. Trying to work. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your service. Um, everyone go check out aerial resupply coffee. I appreciate your time today.
3: Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate being here as always. Take it. Take care.
2: All right, everybody send us the hard stuff. That's what Donovan logistics says. When you turn to that really challenging logistical nightmare that keeps you up at night. Call the good folks over at Donovan. They make headaches disappear. Visit them at Donovan.com. All right, elsewhere. (laughs) What's up, Kevin? Hill spends his
1: weekends.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Getting. I don't even know what they're putting in these people's mouths.
4: (laughs) Would you do it? Would you take
2: one of these? I feel like I got a second-degree burn on like the roof of my mouth just looking at that.
3: <laughs>
6: Kevin Hill, put that coffee down. You ever you ever have something like that shoved in your mouth before? I, I I haven't. You know, it looks kind of interesting though. I I I wouldn't mind trying it, but you know, I, I burn really easy. Yeah, I, I could imagine. I could imagine.
2: It's, it's, where you wear your sunscreen. It's getting to be that season. Did you know that? Did you know that, for example, that the uh, the dark roast has the least amount of caffeine? You got to go with the light roast? That was, that's what Michael was telling me. I think a lot of people don't know that.
6: I think a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that until pretty recently, maybe in the last four or five years. And I started drinking light roast only because I need as much caffeine as possible.
2: Yeah. I mean, what's the point? Uh, Cause I could always water it. I'd rather have more caffeine that I could water down than like, just not have enough or like i need two or three more coffees
6: yeah i'd rather have more caffeine and get more hyped up than than i need to be than than than, than the latter
2: well kevin it was easy to talk about sales in 2021 and 2022 in fact we were actually we, we were, had entire segments on this show about how the shifting of sales to customer service because they sold all these accounts, they have, to, they have to manage them. Well, we're back in those times of having to sell again. Things are getting lean, and the chafe from the way is going to be separated. Now, it's a long weekend. There's reps out there. They're, it's halfway through the year. They're looking at their numbers. Some of them ain't going to make it. Some of them know that. They may not make it till next quarter. Let's help the ones that want to fight it through, though. What is your first tip for selling in a down market?
6: You know, Michael said it just, just at the very end of his segment. You know, the, the, the coffee market is, is very analogous to the freight broker market. Uh, it's a crowded, flooded marketplace, and you have to find your differentiation right? Your sales and marketing tactics, you need to add value where you can. And it's not finding a truck right now. That's the last thing that, that anyone's worried about is finding a truck, finding capacity. You have to, to go out and sell some value add to services that, that your competitors don't. And that means a lot of times finding your niche. How do I find my niche? How do I, how do I get there? You find what you know about, what you like to, to read about, what you like to learn about, and what business that you're doing right now that you do better than most people in your office, and maybe they they give you these loads uh, because it's you know how to operate them, whether it's cross border or heavy haul or uh, CPG or, or steel, and you know if you go from one CPG company to the next or one steel company to the next or uh, one ltl you know maybe e-commerce company to the next uh, they're going to share a lot of a lot of similarities you're going to know how to, to operate that business they're there going to be a little quirks along the way which you pick up you learn those quirks and you become more of an expert at that field so you, you got to find your niche you got to find your focus this will get you through the, the the rough times as well as really put money in your pocket during the the, the boom times like we saw in 2020 and 2021
2: you know, these, the, the niches, a lot of times, they'll organically start to form themselves, especially when you are mm-hmm. starting to try to find your seller's voice. Because what will naturally happen is, like you mentioned, you'll get a certain type of account. Maybe it's in iron. Maybe it's in steel. Maybe it's even refriced. Maybe it's just in a mode of transportation. But you start networking. Then, like, from there, you start networking mm-hmm. and you start building, and the funnel becomes more refined. Let's talk about that, final,
6: that funnel. How do I find customers right now? You find customers kind of like, like you always find customers, right? You, 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 you do Google Maps or you do this or you do that, um, but it, it's really about doing your research. And if you can get your hands on leads, conferences, or a great thing, whether you go to the conferences or you look at who's sponsoring some of those conferences, uh, you, you want to find names in bulk. You want to find leads in bulk because it is a numbers game, in freight, especially in a down market the the more calls you make, the more business you're gonna you're gonna win. Um, but I was talking about this on a podcast recently. Is that those prospects aren't all created equally, right? So if you have a hundred random names, your open rate or close rate is going to be much lower than if you have a hundred names in a niche that that you know about that you can pitch to. Um, and that you can operate. So it's really about narrowing down that focus, right? Not, not looking at just, uh, you know, industrial centers and calling everybody in that industrial center, but, but really getting specifically down, you know, you have different codes, you have different uh, data sources out there. Some of them are free government sources that, that can be a good start. Um, uh, those are the cold leads, but, you know, social media, LinkedIn. Um, referral, networking, uh, you got to run the entire gamut. It's not a um, one strategy game. It's, It's every strategy. Find out what works the best, as always, right? Find out what works the best. Keep on doing that. And things that don't work, drop them as quickly as possible.
2: Down market. Is it the worst time to sell on price? You mentioned selling on value. How do I communicate that?
6: Well, that's the, that's the hardest thing, right? That's where the, the, the week is separated from the chaff. Uh, it's, it's very difficult. You have to be, get very creative and you have to pitch a lot to, to find out what resonates with potential buyers and, and what doesn't resonate. So it is a very tough time to sell, but it's one of the best times to sell, really, because if you don't think about the short term, think about the long term, right? All those no's that you're collecting are just no's not right now. When that market turns, you've already introduced yourself. People already know what you're about. And when they really need that help, they might not need it right now, but when they do and when that market turns, then you are in prime position to scoop up that business. And then there's become long-term customers that can sustain you through the next down cycle But because it's all up and down in in trucking and brokerage. So that is really important not to get too hung up, uh, you got to make your numbers right, but not to get too hung up on all the rejections right now, because those—that is the foundation for really uh, capitalizing and maximizing this next market upturn, whenever that may be. It seems like it's gonna—it's—it's it's never going to happen, but uh, it will happen some way, somehow, some some possibility.
2: So, do I need to do a little internal marketing with my my sales manager? If I have a lot of those set up, and you said, hey, don't worry about being so transactional collect those no's, there'll be a longer win, which is fine. But when the wolves are at the door and the sales manager's breathing down my back and I can hear his sweat, I can feel his sweat on my neck, Kevin Hill, what do I say to that mf or so he leaves me alone so I
6: can make it to the next quarter? <laughs> or do I punch
2: out? Like, How do I manage that part of it?
6: Well, let's go back to the niche, right? If you, if you can move some type of load, right, or if you can handle some type of customer that no one else can handle, You've you built yourself a little bit of moat that that keeps the, the fire off. If if you're transactional, if you're posting and posting and praying, if you don't, if you're not developing carrier relationships, if you're not developing customer relationships, if you're working off load lists and 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 not having a huge success in, in margin because it's a very transactional business that you have going, yet you better find something because. It's going to be hard to, to keep anyone off your pack if you're not showing um, showing skills that are lacking in the office, right? If anyone else can take over your job uh, tomorrow, your accounts, uh, you're, you're you're you're
2: you're in trouble. It's tough to quiet quit in sales unless you've got a ton of accounts that are just printing money, like in there, right? Like you,
6: they, really you're really so exposed.
2: That. You don't ha- you don't have that. It really
6: is. Yeah, yeah, you, you're not going to quite quit if you don't have any accounts, right? You, you might take a, a three-week vacation before you get shown the door, but, but you're not going to quite quit.
2: What about my last one for you here? A lot of layoffs, just yeah. a lot. Of, and we talk about in trucking capacities being downsized, but so are the desk jobs they are being downsized too. Although sales tends to stick on just a little bit longer because, look, what are you going to do? You're a trucking company. You need to, you need to go make some yeah. money. But how should you be thinking right now?
6: Um, in, in re- re- what regards really i mean um the future if you're in sales right
2: now <laughs> the future yeah like if you're <laughs> how should you be thinking about 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 the future is this the right tech should you jump to an office job or you fight it out in sales
6: I, you have to play it out in sales right if you've been a broker for a while if if you're showing some progress if you have a nice book of business you know keep at it because when that market turns it's gonna be like 2020 2021 again and usually you know, it's 18 months 24 months. Um, that's going to turn. But you know, if if it's if you're not feeling it, then yeah, get out and and go find a, a desk job somewhere else. But um, but it's it's kind of rough in, in a lot of different places. But there are good industries out there right now that are showing some signs.
2: Well, I mean, sales is is We're all reaching. about sales is all about good news, bad news. Hit the music, Kevin. I got some videos for us to look at over here. When's the Kevin? When's the last time you got in a fist fight? Uh, Probably fifth grade. Fifth grade? Wow. How have you kept your nose clean for so long afterwards? I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm the diplomat. Man. Boston's tough. In my 20s, I ended up in, like, a few street fights there. Not, like, Street Fighter 2, but, like, Things just happen at bars, man. People can get kind of aggressive. No guns or
6: anything like that, but you know. But here's what happens: Boston. Everyone fights in Boston. I know. It's just like you can't do do a Saturday night with
2: that. Little Donnybrook, right? You don't like the Bruins? You know, screw you, kid. Well, look at what happened at the (laughs) the port here. These, this, these are Canadians and Bruins fans. These are two port truckers. Uh, What I'm hearing is one cut off the other one, and now they're going to, um, they're going to give each other the business, maybe. No. Now, the thing that's going on here is the guy in the red, he took control of Vest really quickly in this fight, right? I mean, the the safety vest, he's been on defense the whole time. He got his one shot in there, but then he, like, missed missed his haymaker, got thrown right into the side of that flatbed.
6: It's going to leave a welt. Yeah, you can't wear the vest. You can't wear, wear loose clothing, right? Because people grab onto that and that they, that they use that as leverage against you. Oh, like pull the
2: safety vest over your head, like hockey style, and yeah. then just start pounding on the back of your skull? Yeah. Just like the Bruins. It's a relative. I got to say, though, like for, for all things considered, these guys, they had their words. You know, they, they pushed each other around a little bit. But I think they're going to leave each other peacefully here. Yeah, it's just another day at the office. Always an appropriate resolution. Kevin, you used to, uh, you lived in New York City for a little while, didn't you? I did, yes. You ever see the trucks go around like this? Look look at these drivers trying to park. And let's just give a little respect and a little cowbell for New York City semi-truck drivers. This is what they have to go oh. through to, to, to back in. And it's almost like ants, right? I mean, look at just like the, yeah. the human traffic moving through.
6: Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, I was there for seven years, and uh, you saw this all the time, and it was amazing. It, amazing how it actually works, and that it, that it keeps working over and over again with all the traffic and the tight spaces. Um, I, I drove a van around, a moving van around when I first moved to New York, just just for a little bit. It was like a one ton van, and that was too big of a core for for me in Manhattan. I mean, I. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I want to say a bike hit me one time. I didn't hit a bike.
2: Ugh. Impressive, though. I don't I don't know if I could do that. I think I'd have too much anxiety to drive like an actual semi truck packing up oh, in would. New York. I might have to hit some docks first.
6: Yeah, no, I, I, I would. My anxiety would be off the charts. I, I could not do that.
2: Kevin, let's take a look at the day in the life of a truck driver. Roll this tape right here.
1: Hi, what's up, everybody? <clears throat> I have been long waiting for almost 12 hours uh so last night about 2 50 a.m somebody knocked my door while i was sleeping a lady who is a yard goat driver she's so rude to tell me (laughs) you can't park here i have no enough room to pull up my trailer you need to move to another side i drove to another side so no any space available so I dropped to this corner, slept hmm, about two hours, uh, about 4.50 somebody else called me to give me a dog. So I back up to the dog, ran out almost, yeah, eight hours, but uh, my trailer is still not yet. Yeah, I want to see my trailer, so the red light is still on, but I pushed my, my cell phone inside the dog, you know. Yeah, through the rubber seal inside the dog and make a picture um it's almost done but but it passed uh, extra hours still not yet i don't know they're not efficiency they're not productive they always work for a while and break for a while work for a while and break for a while <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so frustrating i love this guy though he's got a smile on his face he knows that yeah this sucks he's stuck there but what are you gonna do
6: there's not much that you can do you know he's got a, they've got his trailer they've got his trailer half it looks like half full uh or half empty depending on how you look at the world dooner. and um and he's stuck there you got to have a little bit of sense of humor about it right even though it's frustrating and it sucks uh if you don't you'll go crazy
2: Kevin, you're 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 taking a trip for. Are you taking a drive for, for? Are you taking a drive for Memorial Day? And what would you do if you saw this big medieval ball in the middle of the road? <laughs> Look, they have to simulate things like this. Like NASA, they got to put four people in a 3D printed uh, habitat in the space center before they put them on Mars. You got to drive into um, some video game ball and chains before you take your road trip, Kevin. Oh, man, he got wrecked. Whoa. Yeah, at, at certain the speed, I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm wondering at what speed it'll flip it. Get in there. Get- oh, that was a good one. This next one's definitely so gonna be a flip. No! Yes, sort of. Not the way I was expecting, though. Oh. Oh, no. Keyboard cats played us off. Kevin Hill. All right. Drop the tape. Go look up. Put that copy down wherever you get your podcast your on your road trip this weekend. And while you're there, subscribe to What the Truck. Uh, find me on Twitter, at Timothy Dooner. Subscribe to all of our social media at FW. What the Truck. Hey, have a happy Memorial Day. No show on Monday. Why? Because the goat is going to see some family. But I'll be back on Wednesday. And I'll see you all then. So have a happy and safe... Uh, trip. Thank you to NASA. Thank you to Kevin
6: Hill. Thank you to Michael Clymer. Take care and don't be a stranger.